Today we are joined by Andrea Hen Henry. Uh, interpreting is is what brings me the most satisfaction. That's my puppy Vin. So, uh, but when I landed at Children's, which was kind of a happy accident, it must be such a a privilege to to be part of those tender, vulnerable times in people's lives. You know, that that's one of the hardest things is to try to regulate your emotions, right? Because you are exposed to bad news, bad prognoses, uh, people openly crying, doctors openly crying. Do you spend any time with, say, a new healthcare provider who you haven't worked with before or a new patient that you haven't worked with before kind of giving them the ground rules of how things work. And even though the doctor is looking at me impatiently, like, what are you saying in Spanish? I'm ready to talk. I do it anyway, because I need them to be comfortable with what I'm going to probably end up doing, which is occasionally interrupt them. Yeah. Do you have the opportunity to, like in a, in, like in a translation job, you have maybe the opportunity to do a postmortem. You have the opportunity to sometimes help the provider um, after the fact, say, hey, this is, you know, this is when you're in this type of situation, this might be helpful. Yeah, absolutely. That's the wonderful thing about being a staff interpreter is you gain some degree of rapport because yeah. they see you all the time. Um, and we are perceived as part of the team at Children's, which is yeah. a wonderful thing. So we're, we're kind of on the same footing. Uh, and I'm at this point in my career, I am starting to talk, talk to the doctors and with their first name, which is nice. I used to always, yeah. I was very Southern about it. I was Doctor, it's nice to see you, doctor. Right. You know, thank you, doctor. Now, you know, there's a few doctors that I've gotten to know well enough and they go by their first name. So I'm comfortable with it, but it's mostly because they provide that culture. They really, really do pull us in and want us to yeah. partner with them. Yeah. So if I give feedback in the hallway, you know, or I try to explain maybe what I did or what might make it easy. Um, it's usually well-received, you know, occasionally over the years, yeah. there's one, one doctor in particular where I'd explain what I did and why I did it. And I thought he would really appreciate it. And he'd go, okay, Andrea, thanks. And then he'd just keep walking. <laughs> I thought, I don't care. He's probably processing this and, you know, it's, it feels good to me to at least share what our process is because I'm quite proud of it. And yeah. I, I don't think they understand. And I feel like the less we tell them, the less they understand. Yeah. So it's worth it, even though he always looked really bored. <laughs> it's just, I got, okay, thanks. <laughs> so funny. Oh, man. And that was going to be my next question. Is do you ever do providers usually take it well, take feedback well? But, um, and it sounds like most of them do. They do at children's, yeah. 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 And the new ones, you know, you you notice they're still learning um, because they've got knowledge without experience. And so, like I mentioned before, you kind of learn to just roll with it, and you think, okay, they're gonna they're gonna say things in a textbook way that's not going to be meaningful. Uh, so I might have to do a little extra uh, encounter management of you know occasionally say, oh, when you say vasculature, is it okay if I say veins and arteries? Yeah. Um, oh yeah, yeah, great. That sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. So we uh, interpreters learn an incredible amount of synonyms for things, and we yeah. we really care about knowing different plain language ways to say things, so that we can be just as responsible for that uh, communicative dynamic as as they are. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but that's it's interesting you say that. It's um, it's something that I face in the clinical trials translations that I do, um, especially when they're doing a survey or a, uh, an informed consent. Uh, informed consent form 
or um, in the patient information, they they work really hard at at um, using language that everybody can understand that the, in layman's terms um, per se. So, yeah, yeah, um, it's really, it's so important. Um, so, as someone on the front lines, you have you've also had the opportunity to do some research. What kinds of things have you learned from your research, and how does it affect the way you work? Ooh, uh, well, definitely learn to be patient. I've learned an incredible amount of patience with the research. We've worked on it for many years. Um, my study team and I created a metric. Uh, we developed it and validated it, and it assesses demands on interpreter concentration and mental fatigue in the encounter. Yeah. And we're an interdisciplinary team. So we represent a clinical nurse specialist in the uh, cardiac defects unit um, or congenital cardiac defects unit. And that's Kathy Murphy. She's been at Children's close to 35 years. Uh, and then our main statistician is Courtney McCracken. She was from Emory. She's now with Kaiser Permanente. We have a few other statisticians helping us with our final analysis. And then there's me, a staff interpreter. Um, and it's gone through a very robust uh, scientific process, but it's taken a very long time. So my lessons learned definitely include uh, not letting failure stop me from finishing. Uh, you know, research, at least our kind of research is not for the faint of heart. We had to go through so many hoops. Um, we had to find funding, which is not easy. Uh, and then go through the IRB several times just to make sure everything we were doing is ethical. Right? And I'm sure with all your uh, translation with clinical trials, everything about research has got to be ethical. Yeah. Um, and so we've gone through all kinds of training and certification, uh, me especially, because as an interpreter, I didn't necessarily have this, um, like the, those different uh, research training uh, modules that you, you've got to do. Um, but you just need to have perseverance and stick it out despite the bumps. And we've had a, a lot of bumps along the way because what we were doing was just really hard to compare to anything else. So we didn't really have the opportunity to do construct validity or to compare it with another tool and then validate it. it it's just very unique. Um, so it took a village. There's a lot of people that have helped us along the way. And um, you know, it came with some surprises. So uh, one thing that's beautiful about research is if you go in blind and you think, okay, I, I don't know, I, I really don't know what this is going to yield. It's very satisfying because we we did the first phase, which was 24 interpreters and all face-to-face, -face, all Spanish, two separate years, 2018 and 2020. Um, and they used this tool, this metric that we created for 1,600 interpreted interactions. Uh, over several months in each one of those years. And, um, and we had findings from that and some wonderful consistencies, which was uh, satisfying because uh, we had gone through several phases prior to that that we didn't achieve the numbers we needed. So we had to um, keep, keep creating more iterations of the tool until we perfected it, mostly with the statistician's help. She's a bit of a rock star, uh, Dr. McCracken. Um, but then we tested it. So in the middle of COVID, we had this grant funding that was extremely exciting to get. It was a competitive process and we were one of the three groups that got the money. And then the pandemic happened. And I thought, oh, like this is never gonna be done. Like I'll be like 80 and we'll be still working on this. 
And then we started up again, and thanks to Vanessa Costa, I have to always mention her. She was at Cambridge Health Alliance. She's now with HCIN, which is a, a network of interpreters across the country. Um, but she said, yes, she said, you know, the worst thing that can happen is you might prove that my, my interpreters are tired and I am, I'm ready for that. And then we had to stall everything. And then once we got started up again, we got two more facilities to agree to participate in the research. And I'm pretty positive they both uh, signed on because of Vanessa. She's quite well respected in the field. And, um, and we got uh, the whole process started. And in the end, with 43 additional interpreters representing eight languages in three cities, so Boston, uh, Cincinnati, and San Antonio, uh, they did 2,300 encounters and used that tool over three months. And the crazy thing that we found out was it completely unexpected many things were, were wonderfully confirming and validating. But, oh my God, there it is again. You know, these are all uh, doing some of the same things in terms of the, the number part of it or the math part of it that we had seen before with the other group. Uh, but with this group, we found that video interpreting is severely fatiguing. Oh. And nobody expected that. Like oh. we didn't know if phone or face-to-face -face or video, we didn't really know. I don't do video interpreting, so I didn't even have an opinion. Uh, from personal experience, but we went yeah. in totally blind and that was a surprise. Huh, um, yeah, but people ask, I had somebody recently at the hospital, she's a freelancer, she came, I don't know, a few months ago. She said, oh, you're still interpreting? And I said, yes, for full time. She said, I thought you stopped interpreting to do research. And I said, no, I've done the research on my downtime. Um, and I guess what I wanna point out is the, or at least say, is that I love the research, but I only love it because I love interpreting. And the research has taught me about my interpreter practice just from the incredible knowledge we've accumulated over the years and the things I've recognized about myself and my, my practice. And that's very satisfying. Uh, so it's informed on my practice as an interpreter and certainly interpreting has informed on the research, but I really would love to, to see this research published, which is our goal. Uh, this year after that final analysis, and then we can share the tool for free for the uh, for the industry as a as a component of workload and having a way to really standardize working conditions by looking at workload based on uh, cognitive uh, load and cognitive effort. Yeah, 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 good. I'm glad you mentioned that because I was going to I was going to ask you what you know how how is what you've learned and the research you've done over years going to benefit your your colleagues and your peers. So that's, I, I hope you are able to publish that as well. It will be very valuable. Thank you. Andrea, we come to the last question and that's your hot take. Do you have something that you would want to share? Yes, I do. <laughs> I'm really ready for this one. Um, so let's see, where did I go? Um, yes. So my hot take would be that as healthcare interpreters, we do not really know our value. Um, the skill set required to do this job is extensive. And I'm going to give you a long list here, uh, you know, from the standpoint of proficiency, right? We need proficiency in at least two languages in the, in the basic vernacular or maybe a universal vernacular. We also need proficiency in the regional differences, uh, you know, based on where the family's from. Um, and then we have to be in healthcare. There's about 60 specialties on a daily basis that you could potentially be interpreting for, you know, rheumatology, cardiology, um, pediatrics, uh, you know, 
uh, renal uh, specialists or kidney specialists. It's just, it's a wide variety. And then we have to be proficient in hybridized speech. To add to that, we also need cognitive skills, short-term memory, the ability to retain information during consecutive and then repeat it in the same, in the same spirit, changing the syntax as necessary, making sure all the cultural nuances are there. And then we have to have simultaneous skills, uh, paraphrasing skills, and like I mentioned before, a wide variety of synonyms so that we can toggle back and forth. It's a bit of mental gymnastics for sure. But then also we need encounter management. So there's a lot of traffic control. Uh, and then of course it's bi-directional, both languages um, and entirely unpredictable. In addition to that, we have to be proficient in the culture. So the culture of medicine and, and then the, the, the little, you know, micro cultures of each one of those specialties. Um, and then the culture of the patients and their potential subculture, uh, their level of acculturation in the US. Um, and then power is a huge barrier when interpreting. And so you've got to take that into consideration in terms of the decision-making. And then we're addressing health literacy all day long, just trying to somehow figure out a way to navigate all the massive disparity between the way a doctor might speak and a family might understand. And then the research, like I mentioned, demands on concentration. We have to you know, either find a way to deal with them or sublimate them and convey the spirit, uh, what's being said. So I don't think most interpreters know to say all that. We mostly know what we do is important. We, many of us absolutely love the work, but we don't really articulate ourselves very well when we talk about what it is we're doing. Um, we just do it. And I think that, you know, we don't quite know how to share uh, what it is our brains are doing and why it's worth much more than we get credit for. Um, and I just wonder if we could get better as interpreters. Like we think of ourselves as practitioners, right? Like a doctor, a nurse, police officer, teacher, it's people driven. Everything about what we do has to do with people and the dynamic. And if we look at ourselves as, as these experts and practitioners in this area, and we can get better at articulating it um, and more deliberate in how we advocate for ourselves and our colleagues and, and the patients and the families, maybe we could advance the ball a little a little faster in terms of improving our working conditions and our status. Um, because ironically, with all that that we need, which and there's all that and more, those are just some of the things I jotted down. Um, you know, with all that, we still ironically uh, are at the lowest status from the standpoint of the way we're perceived. And I think, I think part of that is us. It's on us to get better at really sharing what it is we do there's a lot of market-driven forces that we can't change, but I think what we never got a chance to do was to create a, a, a base understanding of the value of this job. And then, of course, then the market, you know, there's, there's all kinds of different uh, things that do push a wage up, uh, things about the way we articulate what we do that can push our status up. But if we could have an economic analysis, like what Dr. Shao uh, did, it, he's a professor of economics at Harvard, he looked at uh, reimbursement rates um, for physicians to try to understand you know, what this is worth in comparison to this. If this doctor does this kind of in-office in surgery versus this doctor doing it in an OR or the surgeon or this kind of service in the clinic that's you know, maybe a consultation combined with a prescription, what are all these things worth? He did that and he looked at work as a you know, like with a formula in a sense, he looked at, at pay related to work as a function of time spent, mental effort and judgment, technical skill, physical effort and stress. 
And it, it with using that as a bit of a rubric or a way to uh, figure out what what kind of reimbursement they they deserved. That that was one way to create a bit of standardization. I think we would do well to have that analysis done of our work. Um, and just with technical skill alone, most hospitals don't really consider the fact that a second language, and it doesn't matter which one you learned first, a second language in the language acquisition field is worthy of five to eight years of academic credit. If they were to add that in the compensation package, that could also help. There are people across the country looking at this. And I think in many ways, many hospitals do it quite well. Children's is very competitive, but there's a lot about what happens in the market that still doesn't reflect the actual job. Most of it is reflecting where it started and then of course how things uh, go with supply and demand, but we never really got a chance to reflect the actual job itself. So we might have to go backwards, but I think if Dr. Shaw could help us, that would be great. Or somebody, and somebody with deep pockets willing to do the analysis. And of course it varies, right? Each environment, just like a nurse, is a different sort of environment. Nurses who work in the cardiac ICU get paid more than a nurse that works in a clinic, right. uh, maybe seeing, you know, well baby checks or doing well baby checks. But that's another opportunity to, you know, start a gradation or, you know, a different set of levels. That's my hot take. Okay. I appreciate that. And, and interestingly, we have many of the same conversations and discussions about how a translator should be compensated as well. In fact, one of my one of my mentors, um, Dr. Alan Melby, um, who has is a past president of the American Translators Association, um, it talks a lot recently about how translators are paid and there is some discussion traditionally has been by the word um, but there is some discussion to pay translators by the hour which would take into account many of the things that you talk about you know the stress and all those different variables that you that you talk about so it's interesting we have the same conversations I appreciate yep. you with us yeah thank done. you we're done. I appreciate the time. <laughs> You've been very, very generous. Well, thank you. Yes. Dankeschön. This has been Life in Translation. Thank you for tuning in and staying up to date with the latest trends in translation and localization. If you like what you heard, subscribe to LIT wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to see more, check us out on YouTube as well. Thank you.